Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. No time to prepare this, of course. It only dropped in the last 60 minutes. But the last 60 minutes of reading it are enough to make your hair stand on end. We'll talk about who's not in it and who is in it. That paragon of virtue, Tony Blair and his missus, Cherie, are in the mire in it. Uh, the social democrat, the centrist, the guiding mind, indeed guiding hand of Keir Starmer's Labour Party is revealed therein to have purchased a £6.5 million property in the Marylebone Road in London to house Mrs Blair's legal practice, but they had absolutely no idea uh, that they bought it from a minister in the tyrannical government of Bahrain. That's right, uh, the erstwhile Middle East peace envoy, the man who earns nine million a year from the Saudi kleptocrat tyranny, the man who has befriended every Gulf potentate ever seen on the planet, had absolutely no idea that he was buying this property from a Bahraini thief. Because all of the royal families of all of these tyrannies did not get as rich as they are by legitimate means. He bought the company, not the property. He bought it offshore, as you do. And it's purely a coincidence that thereby he avoided paying over £300,000 in tax to the British Exchequer by purchasing this property this way. £312,000 to be precise. There is no suggestion, as the Guardian puts it, uh, that the Blairs knowingly carried out this sordid manoeuvre with any view to saving on their tax bill and reducing their more than £100 million personal fortunes. Oh no, that would be entirely unworthy. Neither is it suggested that Mr Blair or the Bahraini oligarch had any knowledge of each other's existence in this transaction. And if you believe any of that, I have a bridge here in London that I can sell you going cheaply. 
the property portfolio of the King of Jordan is not going cheaply. In fact, $100 million would not buy it. All the while, his countrymen and women groaning under the yoke of millions of refugees and uh, an economy headed south. Not to mention Jerusalem, over which he has uh, spiritual authority. Not to mention the Palestinian people over the very thin river that divides the two territories. Oh no, it was more important to sink a hundred million dollars into Malibu. As you do, Malibu, what's not to love? Mind you, the Aliyev tyranny in Azerbaijan has done exceedingly well considering how little time the family has been in power. They are revealed in Pandora's box to have purchased offshore a 400 million pound property empire here in London town. Yes, they even sold a part of it to Her Majesty the Queen. Yes, the Crown Estates paid 67 million pounds offshore to buy a property from an oligarch whose name has become a byword for corruption and other brutalities against the people of his own country and indeed his neighbors. There's so much to unpick. I'm trying to get someone who will help me unpick it. But if I don't, we'll return to this subject in the final hour with the redoubtable James Giles. There's one person who's not in the Pandora's box. And that is President Vladimir Putin of Russia. The president of the Czech Republic's in it. He bought a 22 million euro chateau in France offshore. Well, as you do when you're the president of the Czech Republic. And there are many, many others. We don't care what the rich do, more fool us for allowing them to do it. The problem is the politicians, the politicians who rule us and who could do something about it, who are revealed to be up to their necks, wallowing in the trough of often ill-gotten gains. Putin's not in it. Yes, he is, said a good friend of mine not 15 minutes ago. I saw his picture on the BBC website. He must be in it. He's not in it. I saw his picture. You were meant to see his picture. His picture is in it, but he isn't in it. There are two Russians in it. One of them is described uh, by the scribe in The Guardian as having been allegedly romantically linked to Putin in the 1990s. And the other is somebody who's dead and who is again allegedly 
on friendly terms with Putin, but Putin ain't in it. Many other Russian oligarchs, usually another word for thief, are in it, including the owner of the London Evening Standard, a Mr. Lebedev, whose son attended my wedding. You could tell there was only one billionaire present because he was the only one wearing jeans who didn't bring a wedding present or even a card of congratulations. His father owns the Evening Standard and London Live Television, has extensive interests in Hollywood and fled Russia in 2016, having been accused of embezzling a huge amount of the people's money. There are Russians by the baker's dozen in the Pandora's box. But they have all one thing in common. They are Russians living in exile from Russia. Not least because over the last 20 years, Putin has been trying, not hard enough in my view, not firmly enough in my view, has been trying to get a handle on the oligarchs and get some, if not all, of their money back. We'll be talking about corruption of a different kind in a minute or two with Roger Waters, the mind and the inspiration behind the wonderful Pink Floyd. Roger Waters, like this show, is a friend of Stephen Donziger. Regular viewers and listeners already know that Stephen has spent the last two years and more under house arrest in New York City at the behest of an oil company who've taken a private legal action against him, nothing to do with the justice system, not endorsed by the Attorney General of the United States, an oil company operating its own justice system and able to place someone under house arrest for exposing their crimes against the people in Ecuador. Well, they've gone one better this week because Stephen Donziger will not be watching the show this evening because he's behind bars in an actual prison as a result of a private legal action taken by an oil company seeking to avoid paying for the devastating human and environmental disaster that its activities in a poor third world country have caused. You really couldn't make that story up. It's no wonder that the friend of liberty, Roger Waters, has been drawn to that story. Don't forget that Julian Assange himself another mutual friend of this show and Roger Waters, will shortly be on trial effectively for his life. Because as the original judge found in his case, the risk of Julian Assange committing suicide if sent to the internal Guantanamo Bay in Colorado, USA, was so great 
that she could not in conscience countenance extraditing him to the United States. Since when a tsunami of filthy odour worthy of Chevron itself has flowed over this case. It is utterly bankrupt. Sordid doesn't come near it. But there's still a chance that an English court will send Julian Assange to that Guantanamo after all. Now, as it happens, I know a very great deal about Lord Louis Mountbatten. With my interest in India and Pakistan, you might expect that. I have studied, not academically, but studied as a layman, uh, the labyrinthine events and negotiations uh, that took place in the run-up to and in the aftermath of the partition of India and Pakistan. It was not long before I was born that it all took place. To describe Lord Louis Mountbatten as a filthy pervert who would make Prince Andrew look like a Boy Scout, if he had been a Boy Scout, Lord Louis Mountbatten would have had him in his bed, at least according to the FBI, who cautioned the United States government to have nothing to do with Mountbatten because of his perverted appetites for young girls and young boys. In fact, there was scarcely anything with a pulse that Mountbatten would not enter, oftentimes several at a time. Mountbatten was a national disgrace, and yet to the British people, he continues to be presented as a polished adornment to the British royal family. Well, I know standards have slipped in British royalty, but it's time to drum Lord Mountbatten out of the pantheon. We'll be talking to a man, Andrew Lowney, an author who has considerably enhanced my knowledge of these matters later in the show. And we'll be talking in addition to James Giles, to the coolest of American commentators, Garland Nixon. It's all coming up over the next three hours and 40 minutes or so here on the mother of all talk shows. The phone lines are open now, by the way. I'd get busy if I were you. Have you got the phone numbers? Let me, let me, look, here's the numbers. 08. 081-965522, if you're in the UK, and it's entirely free. And if you're in the United States, it's also entirely free. It'll cost you nothing at all. Just dial plus one, 844-944-3344. Or you can email the show anytime at onair at moats.tv. Or, of course, tweet me at George Galloway at RTUK News. Here's the first poll. Who is the biggest disgrace to the royal family? A, Lord Mountbatten. B, Prince Andrew. C, Henry VIII. Now, that is a close race. 
But once you've heard our guest on the matter, you'll realise, actually, it ain't that close at all. So the lines are open, the poll is out there on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube, on my Telegram. Hey you, do you want to know more of what's happening in the world right now? Of course you do. But getting to the heart of the story, well, that's going to take some hard work. That's why here at the Mother of All Talk Shows, we've created that program just for you. Hosted by one of the world's most sagacious minds. Get a perspective, an education on stories from all around the world, dissected and discussed with you. Join our debate, vote in our polls on Twitter, tweet a question to George, or call in now to give us your perspective on the stories the rest of the world simply isn't talking about. Join the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. Hosted by one of the world's greatest orators, the mother of all talk shows, with George Galloway. Let's make sense of the world together. If you thought the FBI didn't fancy Prince Andrew very much, they are reportedly seeking to interview him, and he is more than reportedly, but actually actively seeking to avoid them. You should read what they had to say about Lord Louis Mountbatten, who came to, of course, uh, a very tragic end, along with uh, children and others, uh, when the IRA blew up a boat that he was sailing off the coast of his estate in the Republic of Ireland. And no disrespect is intended to uh, that uh, disgraceful ending. but the lifetime of Mountbatten was seeded with the most loathsome corruption. The FBI warned the American government not to have anything to do with the man who was once the supreme commander of the Allied war effort in the Pacific. He was the, uh, the last viceroy of India. He presided over uh, the... Uh, catastrophic division uh, of India into two states, India and Pakistan. He was present at, in the 1970s, during the government of Harold Wilson, seditious discussions that centred on a military coup to overthrow the Labour government of Harold Wilson and put the very same Lord Louis Mountbatten in charge of a government of national unity, effectively a junta uh, overthrowing the elected government of Great Britain. Uh, He was a rum character, even on the basis of the books that I've read, some of them written by our next guest. I've even read his Stalin's Englishman, a wonderful book about Guy Burgess. He's a top literary agent and a top author, and his name is Andrew Loney. Meet him now. Andrew, thank you very much uh, for joining us. The proximate reason for uh, this discussion is that you're trying to open up to the public uh, information about Mountbatten that is being ruthlessly suppressed. Please tell us about it. Well, that's right. Um, there have been two official lives of Dickie and Edwina Mountbatten. 
and those lives uh, quoted quite extensively from their diaries and letters. So when I began researching my book in 2015, uh, I asked to see these letters and diaries. Uh, the whole collection of Mountbatten papers had been bought by the University of Southampton with public funds and under the acceptance and lieu scheme uh, to be seen by the public uh, for close to five million pounds. Uh, and I was surprised, therefore, to find that they knew nothing about these diaries or letters. Well, eventually, after a six-year fight uh, through the uh, tribunals, having um, put in numerous freedom of information requests and having had the Information Commissioner rule that these diaries and letters had been closed quite illegally and should be opened to me uh, and to indeed any other person who wanted to see them. That decision was made in 2019, but the Cabinet Office, who somehow seemed to have got themselves involved in this, and Southampton University appealed, uh, and we're still fighting to uh, get these diaries and letters, which I think are an important source uh, revealed. Uh, some material, uh, after parliamentary pressure and media pressure, has been released, but there's still uh, the diary, for example, for 1947, covering Indian independence, uh, and the papers after 1960, which remain closed, and uh, plus other gaps during the Second World War. Uh, it was almost an unprecedented uh, occurrence in that um, Southampton University were actually charged with contempt of court by the Information Commissioner. Uh, they've now been uh, basically fighting a very expensive legal battle to prevent me seeing this. Uh, it's cost me £250,000 in legal costs, and it must have cost them quite considerably more. But neither the Cabinet Office nor Southampton are prepared to say what their costs are. Uh, and I think this is a very important case, not just for historians having access to archives, but it's an example of the censorship of our history by those in power and the abuse of uh, a government uh, to um, uh, prevent uh, material which has been bought by public funds from being seen. In effect, four and a half million was spent buying it and another million probably has been spent stopping people seeing it. What do you think it is they're trying to hide, Andrew? Well, I wish I knew. I mean, from what I can see of the material I have read, uh, it's all uh, completely innocuous. So I can only imagine that what they've now kept back uh, is where the juicy stuff is, or that they're simply seeking to make an example of someone to prevent anyone else in the future trying to, to seek access to material. But what's very clear is that the royal household are involved in this. They've been going to meetings. They're copied into correspondence. And we know, for example, that one of the reasons the delays in sending some of this material into the archive was dealing with Prince Philip's death. So it just seems to me that we're living in a banana republic. We're not allowed to know our own history. Alas, uh, it's not a republic. Uh, the, uh, the royal family are clearly... Uh, I mean, what other reason could Southampton University have, having expended millions of taxpayers' pounds on these archives, uh, have for not allowing the public to see them, uh, other than royal pressure? Well, I think they're kowtowing exactly to, to government and royal pressure. Uh, one of the other scandals is that uh, the, they're now admitting that no one had actually looked at this material before it was closed. The only person who'd seen it uh, and who made the decision to close it was uh, an archivist at Southampton who then requested that he could edit the diary himself. Uh, and the Cabinet Office gave him that permission. But the, this diary was due to come out next year. But again, no one will say 
uh, if this diary is going ahead or not. And indeed, parliamentary questions have been answered with lies. They either claim it's subjudice, which is the lie now, or they said that there were undertakings given by Mountbatten in 1969, which allowed them to, to basically um, censor this material. But it was pointed out to them that these 1969 undertakings don't refer to individual diaries and private letters. They refer to government papers from his time as chief of defense staff. So time after time, they, they've told lies. When they're caught out, they just tell different lies. Now, Mountbatten, as I know, not least from your own work, uh, despite being a luminary of the state, could scarcely have been for people d'uncertain age uh, like me. Uh, we were brought up to understand that Mountbatten, with the flashy television series about his life and so on, uh, was some kind of a British hero. Uh, but that wasn't uh, the whole story, was it? No, I mean, he curated his legend, and you mentioned the 12-part series on the Life and Times. Uh, and again, his story was, was, was censored. Uh, one of the things I found in the course of researching my book, The Mountbatten's, was the FBI file that you mentioned from 1943, talking about his penchant for young boys, and that he was a man of very low morals, they called him. Uh, and uh, I began to find more and more about this. I have a whole chapter about his paedophilia and, and, and his bisexuality, which, of course, was illegal at the time. He was sacking people from the Navy for the very offence that he, he was committing himself. And people in authority knew uh, all about it. And the extraordinary thing is that when he went to Malta and just after the war, his chauffeur was tasked by his spare officer or former officer, to, to, tell, to find out where the male brothel was in Malta because he would want to go there. Um, but I think the other shocking thing I discovered was when I asked for other FBI files relating to Mountbatten, uh, only a few years ago, I was told that they'd been destroyed. And when I asked when they'd been destroyed, I was told after I'd asked for them. <laughs> well, has the benefit of being uh, candid, uh, that answer. Uh, the the uh, to be called a person of low morals uh, by J. Edgar Hoover uh, must have meant his morals were uh, really very low. Uh, in a way, in ordinary terms, that would be none of our business, except as you say, some of his uh, proclivities were actually illegal at the time, and he was drumming people out of the armed forces for crimes he was committing virtually uh, on a daily basis. But as we no longer regard these things as crimes, uh, depending on age, of course, and, and uh, consent, uh, it only really matters uh, us, to us in historical terms uh, if, uh, if it impinged on his military and political role, uh, which it did in the case of India and the subsequent partition, didn't it? Well, I mean, he, of course, was always open to blackmail. And indeed, I didn't use this material in the book, but there were suggestions from Russian KGB agents that he had been compromised. Uh, I, I have found no evidence to, to support that, so I didn't use it. But you say it doesn't matter, but, you know, there are victims still alive, still coming to terms with the abuse that they suffered from him. Uh, and there's still the cover-up. Uh, the Garda have admitted that they have the car logs for August 1977 when uh, I, these two of these boys I interviewed were abused. 
but they're refusing to release them on the grounds they are relevant to the 1979 murder inquiry. I think the other question is why uh, his security was uh, reduced in 1979 when the threat against him was heightened and he had been actually warned not to go to Ireland. But uh, you come to the question of uh, um, India. Uh, I think what these diaries may well show us is that he was far less impartial than he should have been as Viceroy and that Pakistan may well have good reason to feel that they were uh, uh, unjustly done by. Uh, so, you know, they're important. Because of uh, Mountbatten's wife, uh, Lady Edwina's uh, brazen affair, maybe even literally under the nose uh, of Louis, uh, with the Indian leader, Nehru. Yes, and I think the two questions are, when did the affair start? Did it start after the independence or before it? And I think all the evidence that I found suggested it began before and also whether it was platonic, as the family claim, or a sexual relationship, which I believe. Um, I, I think there's no doubt Mountbatten knew about the affair very early on and he encouraged it. Uh, it suited his purposes as it suited Nehru's and Edwina's purposes. Uh, one of the other battles uh, is, to fire, is to get released the um, literally hundreds of letters between Nehru and Edwina, written between 1947 and her death in 1960. Uh, Southampton are supposed to have exercised their option on those letters by the 5th of August this year, and yet they've made no statement about them, they've not been made publicly available, and they're not answering questions about that. Now, the, uh, to ask the famous uh, uh, question uh, uh, asked by uh, Paul Daniels, uh, asked of Paul Daniels' wife, what first attracted uh, Lord Mountbatten to his frequent trips to Ireland? Uh, because, as you say, uh, on the face of it, a member of the British royal family, uh, frequently holidaying in the Republic of Ireland uh, when uh, there was a war going on, uh, would seem uh, strange. Uh, I detect from things that you've written and things I've heard elsewhere that he was involved in very murky business indeed in Ireland. Well, the, the family home that he inherited that from his wife, who inherited from her relations, uh, Classyborn, was where they went on holiday every year. But you're right, other members of the royal family were not allowed to go to the Republic. Uh, and he was warned on many occasions on, uh, that he shouldn't go. There have been several attempts on his life uh, before 1979. Indeed, there had been an attempt to put uh, a bomb on his boat Shadow 5 the previous year, which is why not guarding it in 1979 seems extraordinary. Um, but there have been rumours. I didn't put them in my book, but I had a lot of stories uh, that he didn't want much security in uh, Classyborn because he wanted the freedom to be on holiday, but also, of course, the freedom to uh, not be watched with his activities. And certainly the, the two stories that I recount of the abusing of these boys who are now uh, at about 60 um, uh, took place at Classyborn or nearby. Could he have been involved in the Kinkora uh, boys uh, scandal? Well, there are lots of rumours about that and there are various connections. The, one of the boys that I interviewed who was abused was in Kinkora uh, and was brought from there. Uh, he was certainly well known in Belfast. And again, these car logs would be useful evidence to see that if actually one of the wardens at Concora or some member of staff there had driven uh, this boy to uh, Class Classyborn. 
but there's certainly lots of stories about boys being trafficked to some of the big houses in the area. There was a sort of extensive VIP abuse ring operating on the west coast of Ireland. It makes uh, Prince Andrew's uh, 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 alleged offences uh, uh, almost trivial by comparison, uh, the uh, indictment against Mountbatten. Let me move on to uh, political terrain, if I may. Uh, one of the reasons I have a particular interest in this uh, is I knew Harold Wilson. Harold Wilson was a friend of mine after he left office, I should say. Uh, the fact that a junta uh, was envisaged by certain high personages in the land to uh, supplant, overthrow uh, the elected government of Harold Wilson is possibly the biggest scandal of them all. And yet most British people know nothing about Mountbatten's alleged role in that. Yes, well, I think it's you know understandable because most of the paperwork has been destroyed and the people who knew about it are dead and didn't really talk about it in their lifetime. But I was able, by triangulating the, uh, the correspondence of various people uh, involved, to discover that he was much more actively involved than he later claimed, uh, that he was very flattered by the approaches. He actually put forward very various candidates for this government of national unity, including the head of the Hammer Horror Films, Jimmy Carreras. Uh, and he was a man who would have liked to have been prime minister, who felt frustrated as a member of the royal family that he couldn't take on political power. Uh, and um, so I agree, this is one of the unknown stories of the 60s and 70s. There were two periods, really, one in 68 and then one later in 1970, when various MI5 officers were involved. Um, but unfortunately, all those who would know anything uh, are dead, and I suspect the papers uh, will never be released. But certainly the diaries and letters that I looked at in the papers uh, of, of Macbatten and also of Cecil King and Hugh Cudlip had all been heavily censored uh, for that period. There are actually gaps for the key dates. Um, you're a historian, you're used to archives and so on. I suspect a lot of the people watching and listening this uh, to this now will wonder, well, you know, these people would just destroy, especially in those days before computers and hard drives and so on, these people would just destroy inconvenient papers and evidence. Is of course, and that's one of the big problems that we historians have. But, uh, you know, documents the lifeblood of historians. It's the building blocks in which we reconstruct our picture of the past. And uh, we have a Public Records Act which requires these papers to be preserved, not necessarily private papers, but public papers. And the governments of all persuasions uh, over many years have not fulfilled their obligations under the Public Records Act. They are abusing the use of freedom of, of information exemptions. Uh, they are, of course, all the sensitive documents are always the ones that suffer from damp and asbestos. Uh, and we know from countless scandals, including the Mau Mau scandal, that they will lie and uh, destroy files or keep them back when they've uh, even been taught by the courts to bring them forward. So it's a really big problem for historians. But you're right, of course, uh, people who will curate their story and they will destroy papers that reflect badly on them. Um, but that's why uh, we have a Public Records Act that at least the public records uh, have some accurate picture of the past. 
Is that going to become worse in the electronic age now that papers effectively no longer exist? Uh, is that going to make life even harder for historians? Yes, it's much harder for all sorts of reasons. Uh, Tony Blair introduced civil government, so instead of having civil servants taking minutes and records of things, it was all just casual chat, chats, no records kept. Uh, and we have the problem of people using private emails, Michael Gove is notorious for it, and encrypted uh, communications. So the records aren't being kept to start with, let alone being destroyed later. Uh, and it's... Um, it's very difficult. Um, the, the Freedom of Information Act does cause problems because, of course, civil servants have to be able to give advice in confidence and, and, uh, and, and not feel that in 20 years' time they're going to be in trouble for it. But we do have safeguards for that. But my worry is that the governments are hiding behind things like national security when there's no national security involved at all. It's just political embarrassment. And uh, what's the next stage, then, of your valiant battle for... Uh, the right of the public to know. Where does this go now, the Southampton University matter? Well, the hearing which they've managed to kick down the road for two years is finally being heard on the second week of November. Uh, we're expecting to win. They've actually now dropped many of the objections that they originally fought uh, for five years, and they're no longer relying on those. Uh, and so we'll see what, what new excuses they come up with. But we're pretty confident of winning, and I'm pretty confident that I will get my costs. They're not normally um, uh, given in a tribunal of this sort, but we've managed to produce pages of falsehoods that were um, uh, given to us, and we think the judge will award costs in this case. Well, let's hope we can have you back once you've uh, read them all, or at least enough to get the flavour. Andrew Loney, thank you very much indeed for a fascinating uh, discussion here uh, this evening. Now, the poll is uh, going great guns. Who's the biggest disgrace to the royal family? I know, it's a long field. We could have given far more options, but you're only allowed three, not 53. Lord Mountbatten, 15%, up one. Prince Andrew, 71%, down one. Henry VIII, 14... I mean, Henry VIII only chopped the heads of several of his wives, ate legs of lamb uh, for snacks in between meals, uh, was a mass murderer in Ireland and in England and in Scotland. But Prince Andrew beats him hands down, seriously, 71%. It's different on YouTube. 25% of you named Mountbatten on the YouTube channel and 22% on the Telegram channel. Uh, but on my Twitter feed, Prince Andrew has got it. Here's the phone numbers if you want to call in about that remarkable interview. Indeed, three remarkable interviews now in the course of this show. If you're in the United Kingdom, remember it's completely free and the number is 08081 If you're in the United States or Canada, for that matter, it's toll-free, costs you absolutely nothing, and the number is plus one, eight four four nine four four double three double four. Now, the podcast continues to go from strength to strength. I know you think I'm exaggerating that, but if I told you that last week we were the number two podcast in Singapore, you, like me, would be asking... 
why we are in the top 10 in New Zealand and, of course, already a fixture in the UK political charts. Thanks uh, for listening to the Moats podcast, which is basically a compressed version of the whole uh, three-hour show. So you can go to your uh, normal podcast supplier and uh, download us there. Please leave a five-star review, if you will. Helps us to grow, shows people that don't know us yet that we are here. If you're a Spotify user, please follow us and share with your friends. What action will be taking following the Pandora Papers leaks? A, prosecutions. B, loopholes closed. C, nothing. You can vote on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube and on my Telegram. And uh, here's a point that Crowhawk makes that I made earlier to Roger Waters, who concurred. I think they will eventually abandon the Assange trial. The trial has served its purpose to serve as a warning to anyone thinking of doing the same thing in the future. Now we're joined by the coolest commentator of them all the finest independent political commentator in America, Garland Nixon, uh, to talk about all things American. But I suspect Garland uh, will not get much further than Trump and Biden and their respective families. Thanks for uh, joining us. Let's talk about the families first. Uh, Melania, there's a new book about her. Who knew she was interesting enough to get a whole book out of her? Is she? Well, it, this is a tell-all book. Apparently, uh, Melania's, uh, Melania and her uh, press secretary didn't have the, the finest of relationships. Her press secretary is, uh, has uh, written, a, or someone has written a, uh, a book under the name of her press secretary, and it's due to come out Tuesday, and it appears to be a tell-all book. I suspect she'll make a mint, because there's still an element in this country that um, they live and die to hear the word Donald Trump. And I mean that from a negative, you know, they hate Trump. So anything about him, his wife, his family, whatever, um, that will be out. Um, from the tidbits that I've seen about it, eh, it looks like kind of like a soap opera. You know, it looks like something that the the um, the people who are concerned about Trump from the perspective of him as a phenomenon and they hate him. Oh, they'll eat it up. Those of us who want something substantive are going to look at it and yawn. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny that you're supposed to be a republic. It's supposed to be monarchies like this one here in Britain that uh, care about what the wife of a ruler or a husband of a ruler do. But there is an element in the United States that kind of misses the idea of royal families, isn't there? Yes, and additionally, what we see now in American politics is very much the, pers the, the, the politics of personality. Since our, um, our parties are so closely aligned for the major issues when it comes to war in Wall Street, what they have to do is um, focus on individuals, focus on people, focus on things other than policies. So our parties and our media push the, um, the politics of personality so they don't have to discuss the significant policy issues and everyone will figure out that we've got two parties masquerading as one. It is, of course, a matter of public interest when uh, the son of uh, 
the now president, uh, is revealed from his own laptop uh, to have been up to his neck in highly lucrative dealings with the foreign government, which is effectively now a satrapy of the United States and thus a, a client of the American president, uh, is revealed from his own laptop uh, to have been uh, sunk in the mire of, uh, in the gore of uh, self-enrichment. But it's even more important when the entire media of the United States and the big tech giants conspire to ban any discussion in the run-up to the presidential election about the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop, declare it to be Russian disinformation, and then when President Biden is safely ensconced in the White House, it turns out all to have been true. Discuss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, if I may take that, this is the perfect opportunity to segue into something that I believe is closely related, and that is Donald Trump has filed a lawsuit in the uh, in Florida um, to uh, get back on Twitter. He's made an argument, and, and I'm going somewhere with this. These are related. So he's made an argument that his First Amendment rights are being violated by Twitter, which normally um, you, the argument would, would, would fall flat simply because Twitter is a corporation and it's not the government. However, because he's also arguing that Twitter acted on the directive of Congress and that Cong and that Democrats in Congress threatened Twitter, um, they threatened to take legislative action against Twitter if they didn't, I think he can go so get somewhere with this, um, as opposed to normally it's going to be thrown out at the first stop. But here's where I'm going with this regarding Hunter Biden. In the event that Donald Trump is allowed to pursue this lawsuit, we have something in the United States called discovery, wherein he can ask the plaintiffs, he can ask, excuse me, the defendants for all information related to his case. He can then start digging into Twitter, um, uh, uh, all, and in particularly, uh, communications between Twitter and members of the Democratic Party, both unofficially and, and officially, basically anything. And I believe that if Donald Trump's lawsuit is able to um, to get information, get all of the communications between Twitter 
and the Democratic Party, the Democrat leadership, et cetera, that he's going to find a whole lot of stuff in there re related to Hunter Biden, et cetera. So I, I'm very excited about Donald Trump's lawsuit, not because I'm a Trump fan. I'm the opposite of a Trump fan, but because I do want to see um, some information come out regarding the communications between the Democratic Party and Twitter, because I believe it's quite extensive and it will be shocking to the conscience of most Americans. Well, uh, lots of uh, people are described as conspiracy theorists, and some of them are. Uh, but those of us who alleged there was a conspiracy to suppress true facts and information that was on Hunter Biden's laptop are now fully vindicated already. It was his laptop. It was not Russian disinformation. It was true, and yet Facebook, Twitter, all the newspapers, virtually all the TV stations ruthlessly suppressed that which turned out to be true. How's that for a conspiracy? Well, there's, and let me add more to the conspiracy because those are the ones that that's part of this conspiracy that, that we can see up front. But add the FBI. Let's not forget the FBI admitted that they had that laptop hard drive a year before it came out in the public. So that means that during the the um, the Ukraine incident where Donald Trump uh, was was uh, you know brought up on trial for the call he made to Ukraine, they knew that there was merit to Donald. Trump's claim about Biden um, in um, in Ukraine. They held on to it. So the FBI had full knowledge that these things were true. They also allowed a number of intelligence officers to come up with some crazy um, argument that went in Politico, where they said, well, this has all the earmarks of Russian, Russian um, disinformation. So the fact of the matter is, I think, in the same way that the FBI was deeply involved in um, uh, uh, working with the Clinton campaign on Russiagate, the, uh, the FBI was also involved with uh, Congress, with Twitter, et cetera. This is all, that, again, this is all part of what I would call a criminal enterprise, a criminal operation against Donald Trump. A guy who I, I have to keep saying, I'm not a Trump fan. I'm to the left of both parties. But this, these, there are some dramatic injustices that have, that have happened here. Now, uh, uh, Biden's uh, opinion poll ratings have begun to slip, haven't they? Well, yes. And, and it, it, to me, it's obvious why a number of things and, and two things I'll say. Number one, because Biden was exposed as a liar. I mean, in his um, in his uh, 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 during his campaign, he promised that he would fix Obamacare by adding a public option. No dice. He found, I mean, just two things. Uh, he, he promised that he would address uh, college tuition loans that a lot of students are suffering with. Not a penny for that. So he's exposed as a liar because he hasn't kept up to his campaign promises. The other thing I think is this. There are a lot of problems in America. There's a lot of economic uh, stress on the working class, the working poor, and the poor here. Joe Biden only listens to the neocons. The people here don't care about China and Taiwan. They want to eat. They want a roof over their head. So Joe Biden, because he he is in charge of an empire and not a nation, the empire doesn't care about the people. So he is focusing on the empire, and though and 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 that benefits the oligarchs. So the actual voters, they're looking at their um, their day to day life, and they realize that they're suffering. And Joe Biden doesn't care. He's concerned about Russia or China or Iran or something to keep the neocons and the major corporations happy. Yeah, I, I did ask the question on RT America this week. Do American mothers really want to sacrifice their sons 
for somewhere called the Paracel Islands? I very much doubt that. Most uh, American families would rather the trillions that are being spent on war and weapons were spent on them and their life and their environment, wouldn't they? Yes, and unfortunately, that's not happening. However, um, a lot of Americans, I think, are waking up because what we basically have in America is a couple of brainwashed cults where they're told who to like, who to dislike, who to root for, who to root against, like it's some kind of a soccer match. And they don't get a, they're not ever pushed in the direction of discussing policy. So people don't, we, we don't have policy discussions for the most part on our mainstream media. However, people are feeling it in their real, lives. They can't buy a new car. A used car is um, very, very expensive. And of course, um, we're up against some kind of an economic cliff where the few things that the government had done to help people who are suffering from the pandemic um, uh, economic downfall, pretty much all of that is gone. And the only thing we're going to get is an increase in Pentagon spending. And I think Americans realize that they're being left behind by this, um, by this government. Is Trump going to run, Garland? Yes. You know, Robert Kagan, the king of the neocons, wrote an interesting article um, in the Washington Post the other day where he called it a um, a constitutional crisis if, that Donald Trump may run again. And the fact of the matter is it's not a constitutional crisis because the Constitution allows him to run again. What Robert Kagan was really saying was, how, how are we going to stop him? And I'll say this. This move to somehow find an administrative way to stop Donald Trump from winning just shows that they're scared that they're going to lose to him again. And with good measure, they're scared because they are doing such an abysmal job. And it's going to continue to go downhill from the looks of things that Donald Trump could very well run and could very well win. Oh, I hope he's got good security around him because that all uh, looks like uh, a, a, a rather typical uh, set of circumstances that could lead to an accident for Donald Trump. Garland Nixon, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Now, what action will be taken following the Pandora Papers leaks? Prosecutions, 14%. Loopholes closed, 8%. Nothing, 78%. That is how low the public's opinion is about even the scandal that is the Pandora's box and how low the public's opinion is about the powers that be's intentions to do anything about it. Let's go to Philadelphia. Who wouldn't? And talk with Rose. Go ahead, Rose. Good evening, Mr. Galloway. Such a pleasure to be back on again. Nice to um, hear your voice. Love. Thank you. And I love the suit, by the way. Your tie is very lovely. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, okay. So I would like to discuss, of course, uh, my government, which I continue to be ashamed of even more than I was uh, the last time I called you, if that's even possible, uh, because I've just been watching the theatrics of uh, the government trying to pass a spending bill to revert a shutdown and completely throw us into chaos and ruin. Um, but they happened to pass it just a few hours um, before the deadline, Friday afternoon, just in time for them to go on their lovely, uh, wherever it is they go on their holiday, on the weekend. To count their money, um, I guess, Rose. <laughs> absolutely. Of course, because they only passed a temporary, um, you know, one 
uh, little bill to get them through to December. And then when we get to December, uh, it'll be another show. And they haven't even addressed the debt ceiling. That comes in two weeks on October 18th. So we have that to look forward to, which, again, brings me to my next point, which is that we so-called leftists in my country really need to stop glorifying the Democratic Party. They are completely in tune and on the same side of the Republican Party when it comes to the worst, most vicious policies, uh, everything from funding apartheid Israel to uh, increasing the sanctions on Venezuela and Cuba and so on. Um, and speaking of Venezuela, uh, I wanted to call a couple of weeks ago when the UN was in town, just a few hours away from me, um, because I really felt the absence of Hugo Chavez, a great, great um, leader who stood up for all oppressed and poor people. And who, who famously set the uh, General Assembly alight with his uh, wonderful speech. I was in New York when he was there. He had been denied uh, security. Uh, his security mm -hmm. were not allowed to accompany him. So he went uh, without security uh, to address uh, a black church and walked around the streets uh, of New York being lionized by the public. He was uh, someone really special, Rose. Of course, I think you said once that in Venezuela, the only protection he ever needed was from his people not to trample him. Exactly. Because of how much they exactly. loved him. He would have been yeah. kissed to death. It was amazing. Amazing. He would have been he kissed to death. He was fantastic. Yeah. He was. Fantastic. Yeah. So, but, uh, let, was, on, let, just educate me, Rose. Uh, I should know the answer to this, but the last time I looked, the Democratic Party controlled the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. So how come they can't get their spending bill passed? Well, um, I believe a several reasons uh, under the table and those that are pretty obvious. Um, there are the moderate Democrats, is what they call them, ah. moderate Democrats versus progressive Democrats, who don't want to give too much to the people because, as Senator Manchin said, um, that's going to just create a culture of entitlement. So I guess it's just better to let people starve um, and stay on the streets, as we have many homeless people in my mm. beloved city. Let, 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 the, let them eat cake on the streets of, of Philadelphia. Um, and many of them are in the pockets of the fossil fuel industry and the big corporations as well. And again, it just continues to... Uh, they try to twist it in a way that just keeps Trump and the Republican Party in the evil. Um, they've been focusing a lot on the Texas abortion law uh, these past couple of weeks. Now, of course, I don't agree with the law, but they are just using it as a cover for their own, for the Democratic Party's own shortcomings and failings and wow. treason to the people. Rose, you are such a wonderful caller, but I need to press on because James in Cheshire wants to defend Henry VIII. Doesn't happen often. James, go ahead. Hi, George. How are you? I'm good. Good stuff. Tell me. Right, OK. Well, I think you're being a little bit unfair to Henry. I'm being um, a little bit unfair to Henry VIII. Correct. Said no one ever. Go on. Well, I am. Well, so go, on. I'm go on. At the end of the day, he did what he had to do. He was in, you know, it was a different What, murder his wives? 
Well, the thing is, you know, that was a bit far, I suppose, but we're contesting now. Chopping the heads off your wives. It was really, yeah. I mean, I'm not defending that. The whole thing was it was a different time in a different place. Now it was, you know, he had to he had to defend England against the Spanish, the French. He fell out with the Pope. Um, he did what he had to do to, you know, to to survive to try and get in there. He did what it, he thought was best. Isn't that uh, the uh, alibi advanced by every tyrant in history? I not had to do what I had to do. Well, no, I think no, I think you're being a little bit broad. I had to do what I had to do. No, that's, you can't compare him with, say, Stalin. You can't compare him with Hitler, um, or, or dare I say, Tony Blair. You know, it, that, that's, an, that's, that's, that's an unfair comparison. At the end of the day, you know, I mean, you, you look at what he did in the time. You know, he had to keep people in line. So it, it was, you including know, including his wives. Including his wife. I mean, it's not great, and you know what I mean, and whatnot. But he, he, it's he, not he, great, he got... says James yeah. in Cheshire, cutting That's your great. wives' heads off. That one will live. James, thanks for it. Matteo is in Hawaii, on Afghanistan. I wish I was in Hawaii. Matteo, go ahead. Hello, George. Thank you for uh, taking my call. Welcome. I um, I want to talk about. Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller, uh, a name that cannot be allowed to be swept under the rug. He is currently in uh, the brig in solitary confinement while the top brass, uh, Secretary Austin, General Milley, and General McKenzie in Washington are smug. Uh, they just testified a couple days ago that they were in the room when they informed the president, who is the commander-in-chief of the military, that they should that he should leave at least 2,500 troops in Afghanistan, and that if they didn't, if he didn't, then the Afghanistan government would collapse. He was informed of this, and yet he still made the decision that he made. And here's the major problem that I don't think people are actually looking at. And it's a lesson learned from a movie called A Few Good Men, mm-hmm. where two, where two uh, Marines were put on trial for carrying out an order, uh, a code red order, which led to the death of another Marine. And the lesson in that movie is that an order given, if resulting in not protecting those who cannot protect themselves, then that is a crime. And those two men in the movie were not found guilty of murder, but they were found guilty of unbecoming a Marine. And that is exactly what General Milley and General McKinsey have done. They have unbecome soldiers by following the order of the commander-in-chief, even though they knew this would happen. So uh, it was a cold red, in other words, and they can't handle the truth, uh, as was said by Jack Nicholson in that uh, awesome uh, scene. So they've put him in jail. That's right. See, he called them out. But the thing is, he did it publicly. publicly. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Scheller, he did it publicly. So they put a gag order on him. He tried to resign. 
but they didn't let him resign. So they put him in the brig because he defied the gag order. And all he was doing was bringing it to the public's attention of what happened and asking for those top brass people who are sitting smug while he's in the brig, asking for them to take responsibility. Great call, Matteo. Probably the call of the night. Thanks for making it. Now, the Baker's Union was not just one of the founders, but arguably the founder of today's Labour Party uh, that Roger Waters was just talking about. It's important, therefore, to note that the Baker's Union has now left the building. The Baker's Union has left the Labour Party, it has disaffiliated from the Labour Party. And if you don't want to know the reason why, uh, then you're a fool. If you're a Labour Party member and you don't want to know why one of the party's original pillars can no longer stomach it, or if you are someone who just believes, like me, uh, that every country needs an opposition if it is to be called a democracy and the opposition isn't functioning as Keir Starmer's Labour surely isn't the only party ever to finish its conference and go down in the opinion polls, uh, then I think you are being very foolish. Ian Hodson is the national president of the Baker's Union. Its Sunday name is the BFAWU. And Ian joins us now. Ian, thanks very much. It's not every day you get to follow Roger Waters uh, onto the stage, uh, but uh, you're, uh, you're the, he was your warm-up act. Uh, you're, the, you're the main attraction. Uh, tell us uh, the opposite of what first attracted you to the Labour Party. Uh, well, yeah, tell us that. Why were the Bakers foundational in the Labour Party? Well, first off, following Roger Waters, nobody can do that, mate. Um, well, I mean, we, we, we founded the Labour Party because we believed that the Labour classes needed the, uh, the voice in Parliament to change the system uh, that, that didn't work for us. I mean, uh, you know, I, I've, I've been doing a lot of research recently and, and John Jenkins, who was our then General Secretary, talked about, you know, the big two powerful political um, parties, which were the, the Tories and the Liberals. Um, and in 1902, his words were that the Liberal Party uh, believed that working people shouldn't go anywhere else and they didn't have anywhere else to go to, uh, that uh, the Liberal Party... Uh, had three factions in it. It, um, it had a, a, a leadership that was going in the opposite direction from, from what people uh, desired and what they needed. Um, and the, the Labour Party offered the best opportunity for, for, for our class uh, to have a representation in Parliament that, that would ensure that working people um, got, a, got, a, got, a, got a, an opportunity to... Uh, to change their lives. That, that's what the Labour Party was created for. It was to bring about real change, uh, real opportunity. Uh, it was about equality, uh, ending poverty, uh, because there was also in the background of when we were setting up the Labour Party, you had King Edward VII feeding 500,000 people in London that were too poor to eat. And yet here we are in 2021 needing a footballer to do it, George. 
Yes. Uh, so nearly 120 years later, uh, you've decided not that the Labour Party is not uh, the vehicle uh, for the uh, defence of working people and the voice of working people in Parliament and in the political system. What led you to that conclusion? So, so over the, we, we ran a survey of our members earlier in the year uh, and it was quite clear that the majority of our membership didn't think that the Labour Party was, was going in the right direction. They didn't believe that the Labour Party uh, was going to change the system to make it better for them. Um, obviously, recent events have, have, have made our, our membership uh, quite upset. I mean, in 2016, first off, they suspended our general secretary. Um, and then more recently, they, they threatened to auto-expel me uh, for, for actually the, the organisation that I was with, um, or they accused me of being a sponsor of, uh, which I wasn't a sponsor of, um, was, was set up to, to, um, to demand that if the people were being suspended from the Labour Party, they had the right to know, um, they had the right to a fair hearing, uh, they had the right to a representation, and obviously there was a due process that they would be aware of, um, which at the time, you know, uh, in 2017 wasn't the case at all. So these are what are uh, described uh, colloquially or, or, or popularly as the witch hunting of the supporters of the former leader, Jeremy Corbyn, who is himself witch-hunted now, is no longer a Labour MP. So the ex-leader of the Labour Party just a couple of years ago and the union uh, that, uh, that set the Labour Party up nearly 120 years ago are now both outside of Labour. What does that tell us? It tells us a lot. I mean, obviously, we, we I mean, obviously, our, our relationship with Labour goes back even further than that. I mean, we was addressed um, as, as an organisation when we was, you know, in our, our previous name as the Operative Bakers. Uh, we were taking joint action with the Jewish Bakers in the East End of London. We was actually addressed by Keir Hardy in 1893, wow. um, which obviously led to probably our relationship uh, with the Labour Party and why, you know, we felt so strongly about about setting it up. I mean, because today, today's like this, this. I mean, we've just seen in, in the last in the last week that you know the 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 idea that people go to a Labour Party conference, pass motions, and then for the shadow ministers to come out and say, "Well, now is not the time," or, or they're not going to one of those things, um, is 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 incredibly poor. I mean, you know, I took part in the Chulo meeting on the Friday before the conference started where we had a consensus of opinion about the rule changes, for example, but they paid no attention to the fact that trade unions have um, particular structures, which we have to uh, you know, follow um, internally. And they decided to ride a, you know, ride a horse and carriages through union structures. So quite clearly, you know, in, in their opinion, they, they don't care about the trade union movement. And, and one of the things that came over loud and clear at the recall conference that we held was that people thought that conference was, was awful. Uh, they thought that the Labour Party conference, you know, displayed a, 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 a view uh, that was going backwards, that it wasn't going to raise the, the, the opportunities and improve the lives of the people that we represent. In fact, you know, people thought, it was very hypocritical, for, for example, that Keir Starmer in 2019 
uh, came and attended and supported our call uh, for £15 an hour when our members were on strike. But it was more than just a strike for McDonald's workers at that particular time. Uh, it was part of a new campaign uh, which was launched by the CWU, which we took part in, which was called a New Deal for Workers, and to deliver £15 uh, an hour. And, and yet here he is, you know, basically forcing his, his employment minister, who produced the best document of the Labour Party, uh, to resign. Um, after he told us at that meeting on Friday that um, they were open on, on the issue of £10 an hour. And quite clearly they weren't. You know, I mean... If they haven't got the aspirations just for making sure that workers get, you know, paid a wage they can afford to live on, I mean, what does that say about today's Labour Party? Indeed. Uh, so what next for the Bakers Union, this, uh, this uh, historic organisation, which is not in the museum, as you say, you were the ones outside McDonald's with the banner demanding £15 that... Keir Starmer, in a photo opportunity, uh, took part in. So you're still at the cutting edge, trying to organise workers in your sector. What's next for you politically? So, I mean, obviously we're going to do more politics, you know. I mean, you know, leaving the Labour Party doesn't stop mean that we stop doing politics. What it means is, is that, you know, instead of wasting our money on, on the Labour Party, we're going to invest that into setting up in communities. So what we will be doing is we'll be setting up in community centres. We will, we will be giving uh, free advice and guidance to people who are struggling. We'll be working with, with organisations to, to give advice on rents. Uh, we'll be working with the Zero Hours Justice campaign. You know, and, 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 and we will be making sure that, you know, West, Westminster has, has, has been for years seen as, you know, the, the, the opportunity to change people's lives. But what is true, certainly in the last 40 years, um, Westminster has been responsible for devastating people's lives. We saw that with the minor strike. We've seen that, you know, for, for, for decades where, where, you know, the politicians have basically voted through uh, insecure employment, low pay has become the norm and become acceptable. And they keep rolling out these people to defend the society that we're having to live in. You know, so Westminster isn't going to change our lives. It's us that's going to do that. You know, and the Bakers Union is going to play a, a key role in making sure that we educate people in the workforce and educate people in our communities to build a better world by making sure that we understand it's through our solidarity that things will change, as it's always been through our history. Well, uh, very briefly, Ian, the Labour Party must have been deeply wounded by your departure. Uh, have they been on the phone crying? Uh, they absolutely haven't. I mean, you know, that that, that, that was another thing that, that uh, obviously disappointed, uh, you know, our delegates was the fact that we tried to set up meetings with them uh, since June um, and they, they committed to meetings, um, but then they failed to, to arrange those meetings. Um, and basically the only correspondence we've had them, with them um, since, since June was my letter of auto expulsion. We did, we did meet with Annalise Dodds, we did meet with Angela Rayner, um, we did put a proposal on the table to him to, to try and avoid uh, the need to disaffiliate. Um, we gave him until one o'clock on Tuesday and there was, their response was deafening. Well, in my opinion, it's not the opinion of the show or the station, you're well rid of them, I must say. Ian Hudson of the Bakers Union, I take my hat off to you. Many a baker's dozen of successes to you in the 
next period. Sky News is reporting tonight that a Metropolitan Police officer will appear in court tomorrow morning after he was charged with rape. PC David Carrick, who's 46, is based within the Met's Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Command, an armed command, of course, and was charged earlier tonight. He was off duty in Hertfordshire at the time of his arrest and was suspended yesterday by the Met Police. A referral has been made to the Independent Office for Police Conduct. Uh, the Commissioner, Cressida Dick, said, and I quote, I am deeply concerned to hear the news today that an officer from the Met's Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Command has been arrested and now charged with this serious offence. I fully recognise the public will be very concerned too. Criminal proceedings must now take their course, so I am unable to comment any further at this stage. Wow! James Giles, uh, the sorcerer's apprentice, the wisest 20-year-old boy in the entire planet. James Giles joins us now, uh, remotely this time. James, thanks for uh, doing so. Um, a pleasure. Let's start with that breaking news. I mean, you almost find it difficult to credit. First of all, Wayne Cousins, an armed member of the Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Command, uh, goes down for a whole life term for a brutal rape and murder, and now somebody else from the same command is charged with rape. How does Cressida Dick hang on to her job? Well, it's absolutely bonkers, isn't it, that Cresta Dick is still in office. If it were anyone else, the buck stops with the chief and the head would have rolled. So quite why Cresta Dick is still in post, I don't know. If she had an ounce of dignity and humility, she would accept that she's not up to the job and she surely would have gone, if not uh, during the sentencing uh, of Wayne Cousins, then surely now with this latest story. And we may well see uh, increased pressure on her this coming week uh, to do so from perhaps the Home Secretary, the Mayor of London, both of whom thus far have stood by. Yeah, that Western was my Dick. next uh, question, James. I mean, it's extraordinary enough that she has not seen fit to resign, not just over these cases, of course, but <laughs> as long as your arm is the, uh, is the indictment uh, not criminal, but public opinion indictment against her. What is more extraordinary is that politicians who have to face the electorate periodically have continued to back her. What it is, and what uh, baffles me about London, is that since Sadiq Khan came to office in 2016, crime has risen exponentially. Violent crime is up over 50%, and yet the electorate still voted him in with a massive mandate. And, you know, th there must be something wrong here that crime doesn't seem to be in London a big issue on voters' minds. Perhaps it's just something that they've come to expect living in a big city. Well, that's what Sadiq uh, Khan said, wasn't it? 
yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there must come a day of reckoning uh, for these for these uh, things. I mean, crime is uh, an ever-growing issue, not just in London, but elsewhere too. And if the public can't have confidence in the police force, then what hope is there? You know, who watches the watchman? James, I was sat in a restaurant near here earlier this evening, before the show, minding my own business, when four young, and I mean very young, I mean definitely under 18, young black boys wearing the dog's bollocks, absolutely everything from top to toe, brand new, top brand, started for no reason at all, battering on the plate glass window, launching themselves at the plate glass window, kicking the plate glass window. A, a couple sat behind me who they appeared not to know and there was no particular reason for it. Then when the window didn't break, they took a bottle and threw it at a random passing car going by and then ran off. You know where that restaurant was? Literally next door to MI5, bristling with cameras. The whole area, because of the marathon, was moving with police officers. Yet these youths couldn't care less about the chance of being caught and punished. I thought to myself, this is a metaphor for London today. Four of the reasons why I've left London. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, police seem more interested in, in attending uh, PR exercises than actually getting on with the job, which is policing. You know, there are crimes reported daily where the perpetrator has admitted, I'm thinking particularly of vehicular crime, where, you know, someone will have uh, caused uh, damage to someone else's property. They've admitted as such. The insurance process then obviously takes its place. But the police do nothing about it. They close the case and cite lack of resource. You know, let's not forget, Sadiq Khan has closed half of London's police stations, all the police counters. Now, there's one per borough, with the exception of Merton, who launched a judicial review to keep two in Merton. But one per borough, all of the others have gone. Police officers now work in clusters, so there's no longer a police force for each London borough. Uh, they're usually combined between three or four London boroughs. And what that means is the police get diverted to problem areas and areas where there's still crime, but perhaps just not on as great a scale, don't get the attention that they deserve. But that particular case you described today just seems unfathomable. Uh, uh, police the police in broad daylight, by the way. to get away with nonsense. In broad daylight, it was completely unfathomable. <laughs> to me. Um, now, James, uh, Boris Johnson is in Manchester, although he went to the wrong railway station and tried to board the wrong train, going to an entirely different part of the country. Is that a metaphor for where his premiership is going? Well, I think it is. Um, there's sort of a battle raging at the moment, I think, amongst the Tory grassroots for the heart and soul of the party. Obviously, Boris Johnson, uh, with Rishi Sunak, let us not forget, has embarked upon uh, a tax-raising uh, regime. And, you know, that's understandable to some extent in light of the pandemic. But, you know, to embark on a national insurance hike, a corporation tax hike, which, let us not forget, only a few years ago, Tory ministers were arguing against when Labour were proposing it. You know, the Tories need to decide, do they still believe in low taxes and free markets, 
or you know are they shifting to the left and are they becoming what Tony Blair and, and New Labour were and right now that isn't clear so it's a party very much divided currently going off on uh, a track that they've never before been down, much like Boris Johnson headed to Leeds on uh, LNER today instead of to Manchester on the West Coast. Um, and they really need to decide. And the grassroots are getting, I think, ever more uneasy with uh, Boris Johnson, who you know isn't ideologically pursuing uh, what one would expect the Tories to pursue. Sure. Now, uh, I, I address this to you as the best 20-year-old orator since I was 20. Is the art of platform oratory dead? I ask because many people may have died during the 90 minutes that Keir Starmer addressed the Labour Party conference in, and if they did pass away, it may have been from boredom. <laughs> well, quite. I think platform oratory is dead, and I think you can actually see that in action at the Conservative conference. So I don't know if you've been watching the first day's proceedings, but the conference hall, if you can even call it that, looks far more like a fringe event than any conference hall I've ever seen before. It seats no more than 200 people. And I think part of that is because obviously in past years, when you've got less prominent ministers uh, speaking, the halls appear empty. And that's a rather embarrassing image for the party. So the conference hall is really just a conference room. Uh, it's no bigger than the rooms of some of the fringe events. And so you've got ministers speaking, a packed room. But that shows us that the days of uh, oratory performances really are past us. And I think part of the reason for that is, you know, we've got on both sides, Labour and the Conservatives, very few people who can confidently speak persuasively to the general public. I think people are caring far less about party conferences than they used to. Keir Starmer's 90-minute speech, I think, demonstrates that perfectly. Who in their right mind would give 30 minutes, yet alone 90 minutes, to hear that man speak? And so, you know, in reality, the only people that are actually paying attention to these speeches are the already converted party faithful and the hats, which will take a 30-second snippet for social media. What else is going down in the media uh, this week? Well, of course, it would be remiss not to mention the huge papers uh, that were leaked uh, today, the uh, Pandora Papers, uh, which are the biggest leak ever of their kind. Obviously, we've had the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers before this, though, but they both came from just one firm at a time. This is 14 different sources that's revealed a huge amount of highly embarrassing information. I mean, there's over 300 public officials in over 90 countries that are named in these papers. So I think that's going to dominate the headlines, certainly for this coming week, uh, if not further. What about the Blairs? Well, I mean, that is a huge story uh, in itself. So, of course, Tony Blair buying uh, or setting up it's complex, this, isn't it? But they know how to do it. You've got Tony Blair wanting to buy an office for his wife in uh, the heart of London, six and a half million pounds. Nice if you can afford it, of course. Quite a lot. But instead office. of paying the stamp duty that you know you or I would have to pay if we were purchasing a property, they set up a company in Britain, which in turn purchased the overseas company owned by a Bahraini minister. Uh, which then transferred ownership to their British company, if that makes sense, which means that they've avoided 
technically legally, but morally, of course, uh, completely improper. They've avoided paying over £300,000 in tax uh, to the British taxpayer, which, you know, when you consider, uh, you know, Tony Blair was prime minister, he was, in, in principle, the, the top public servant of the land. Uh, that is really uh, morally uh, questionable and objectionable, but that's no surprise given Tony Blair's history in government. Surely. Well, uh, the taxpayer is still paying for the personal protection uh, mm. of Tony Blair. Uh, well, absolutely. I and, mean, and, you know, the least they could do is, is pay their fair share. Here he is, uh, advertently or inadvertently, uh, robbing the British taxpayer uh, of in excess of £300,000 in tax. Uh, James, thanks. I wish we had more time. Uh, look forward to talking to you again next week, but I've got calls backing up here, so I hope you'll forgive me. James Giles there. Now, a new caller this time, Nixon in Worksop in England. Go ahead, Nixon. Hey, well, um, well, it's an honour to speak to you. You're an absolute legend. Thank you, sir. Um, and it, <laughs> it was just something that, that popped in my head because I've been thinking about something similar but on a different tangent. And it was to do with the China, sort of Russia, hold over the world, you know, as it grows and grows and grows. And I, I had in my head something slightly different, and it's to do with Brexit allowing us to... Now, what, what, I, what I would suggest is, if I can just sort of play out what I would say would be what I believe could happen, is that um, we would then shift our main sourcing of, of uh, materials and goods to, to America. So America gets two or three times more uh, manufacturing output, and then that would then go through Ireland as a distribution hub. And the key thing there is also that India comes into play as the sort of balancing act between China, because India could certainly hold its weight and provide uh, a lot of the stuff that China can do, but perhaps in a way which is more along the lines of what this, our sort of common law and legal framework would would match with as well. So what we have then is a situation where um, Ireland can become uh, almost take over, becoming like the new Russia, becoming a global superpower in its own right, um, because it has that sort of um, distribution, global distribution hub, um, but it's also uh, part of a, of, a, of a good balancing act, and then that could make... And, it doesn't even have to be a bad thing for China because China could then focus on other things rather than, you know, the lowest common denominator, whether it's looking for the cheapest sort of parts and stuff and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, China's long ago uh, left that reputation behind. Uh, Huawei, yeah. Huawei, for example, is, is uh, one of the best phones you can have. Uh, the idea that China is merely a manufacturer of uh, cheaper knocked-off goods is, uh, is long uh, redundant. Uh, ap apologies. Ap apologies yeah. for that. But, uh, but I, I still think the a point can hold where, where the India can become a balancing... I'm not here flying any flags for any country. I want all yeah, of the world here, to here. develop and to trade uh, with each yeah. other in amity. I wish India... Uh, every development possible. 
but I mean, the, it's the same for, for, for Ireland as well. I think well, that that could yeah, really be... But the, the problem is, good. India is being used by the United States against China, uh, not for any reason that benefits mm. India, but for geopolitical reasons that benefit the United States. Too late in the day for a long debate on that. Uh, Nixon, thanks Could for the be. call. Could Mark in uh, North Carolina. Go ahead, Mark. Yeah, how's it going, here, George? All good. Hey, nice George. to hear from you, sir. Good. Listen, uh, what I think is this. I think that um, we need a draft in this country, probably in your country, too. Um, if you had a draft, they wouldn't even dare decide to send troops all over the world in places we don't belong. And by the way, one other thing, too. I don't think these other countries have much to worry about right now with passes for the U.S. military. There's a big purge going on. You know, they're trying to make uh, a lot. There's hundreds of thousands of troops that are refusing to take these clock shots, and um, they're trying to purge them out of the military. And these are our best troops. These are like Navy SEALs, Marines, um, you name it, and some of the best pilots. Um, so there's not going to be much of a military left anyway, and whatever you do have are going to be demoralized and uh, won't be able to fight their way up paper bag. Extremely and, interesting, um, uh, Mark. We'll need to come back uh, to that issue, the collapsing morale and numbers uh, in the armed forces in your country uh, and in mine. Now, I'm speaking in South London towards the end of this month uh, in Kingston, uh, in the Shah Mirza Hall. You can get the details uh, from my social media if we don't have them here on the screen. And then the following month in November, I'm speaking in Manchester. Now, there's limited availability for these tickets, so I really do urge you to snap them up quickly because if not, you may be disappointed. There you go. Uh, www.ticketsource.co.uk forward slash killing Kelly. And don't forget, you can get from Amazon uh, the Killing Kelly DVD and you can download it on Vimeo. Uh, so let's take what almost certainly will be the last call of the evening. Uh, she's not quite there yet, but she's the queen of radio phone-ins. She's definitely our queen. She's Her Majesty Norma in Bristol, who will be up in a minute. Don't forget to download the podcast tomorrow uh, from wherever you get your podcasts from. Michael says Labour was killed by Tony Blair, who took the UK into war on a lie. And uh, Olivier Bolton says, no, he's been in prison for the past 10 years. The sword of Damocles is dangling for the dark sharks. And Mike Barson says... Keir Starmer also pushed Corbyn into not accepting the British vote for Brexit. Seems he has no interest in democracy, but is an authoritarian establishment patsy. And uh, Trippers says the bakers are sick and tired of getting all the crumbs while the Labour Party keep all the dough to themselves. That may be the tweet of the night, but this is the call we all look forward to every week. The Queen, Norma, in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Um, my nephew, he lives in Sweden. He called today, and he was saying about their government. And uh, 
that doesn't have overall control, but at least it's democratic. You see, um, it might not be quite what they wanted, but they have got a system of PR, and it works reasonably well. And at least their votes matter. Now, at the Labour Party conference, the debate that nearly passed, actually, only a card vote, I don't know if you saw it, um, on Make Votes Matter. Um, um, this was action. for uh, proportional representation. Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. a big supporter of that, Norma. Well, they, they, they had a, it was really close to vote. It was only the blooming MPs that stopped it. And, you know, there's no democracy, you see, in our country, as you well no, know. Most constituencies, uh, the vote is almost useless. Uh, yeah. because they are gerrymandered in such a way as to be not particularly competitive. Sometimes, a, you know, a big, big vote can be overturned in, a, in an electoral shock, but mostly there are red constituencies and blue constituencies. Yeah, and you see, I mean, while the Tories have got 80 MPs majority, no amount of opposition or debates is going to change anything, no. is it really? No, it changes um, the atmosphere, and the atmosphere can sometimes uh, alter the course of events. But you're right, yeah. uh, the, there's uh, the tyranny of a landslide parliamentary majority gained on a minority of the vote. Exactly, yeah, yeah, no. And just quickly, you know there was this heckler on the um, Keir Starmer speech on yeah, the health. they've probably been expelled by now. I thought they might yeah, have but, taken them out yeah, and shot them. Yeah, but no, but there's one lady... I recognised, and do you know who it was? It was a lady called Carol Vincent. Don't I know it? Don't I remember? Big Brother. She was on Big Brother. She was, and she yeah, was yeah. once upon a time a member of the same political party as me. It's been marvellous. See you next week, God willing. Downloads of the podcast, huge numbers, are downloading this week's highlights in the UK and in the US, but also in countries like Japan. India, Denmark, Saudi Arabia, you probably get executed for that. Korea, Switzerland, the UAE, and Hong Kong in China. Thank you for all the great reviews you've been leaving on Apple Podcasts and including this one. In British politics, Mr. Galloway stands as the last bastion of sense. Like a fine wine, he gets better with age. I have been a fan of his since 2002. I would recommend anyone to listen to him. The best podcast around. Thank you very much indeed. That was a touching testimony. Thank you so much. If you do listen, give a five-star review. Why don't you? You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. 